This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Sans Marie de la Mer, in English, St. Mary's of the Sea, is a quaint little Mediterranean seaside village in the south of France. Population, about 3,000, though it can swell to half a million during the summer holidays. In the 6th century, the Archbishop of neighboring Ares created a monastery or church in the town named St. Mary, a favorite of the fishermen. The village became known as Notre Dame de Ratis, Our Lady of the Boat, in reference to the centuries-old tradition that in that area, three Marys had arrived by boat one spring day, a boat which carried, according to legend, Mary Clopas, Mary Magdalene, and Mary Salome, the mother of John, the Apostle. A servant girl named Sarah, Joseph of Arimathea, Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, and his wife Martha of Bethany, and Maximum, whose sight had been restored by Jesus, all of whom were driven from their homes across the sea by the whirlwind of retribution carried out against the believers of Jesus in the days following his crucifixion. Just a handful of outcasts, they are thought by many to be responsible in large part for bringing Christianity to a wide swath of Europe. Mary Magdalene, Mary Salome, and Mary of Clopas were, according to many accounts, present at Jesus' crucifixion, watching from a distance as dictated by Roman law. They are also believed to be the women who were the first witnesses to the empty tomb at the resurrection of Jesus, and they took part in the preparation of his body for burial. Their names and legends follow in this story. Joseph of Arimathea is considered by many to be the brother of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and therefore Jesus' uncle who asked and received permission from Pontius Pilate to receive Jesus' body, prepare it for burial, and place it in a tomb, which was a shallow cave located on the side of a hill with a stone protecting the entrance. It was no poor man's grave. Joseph of Arimathea was known for his wealth and was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. The Romans knew him well and paid him well for the tin he supplied them from his mines in Cornwall on the coast of England. One of the places, according to legend, he would travel to and from with his young nephew by his side. After the crucifixion of Jesus, which witnessed a hunting down and purge of Christian believers and the scattering of the apostles like leaves before the storm, this tiny group of Jesus' closest followers was said to have been spared death and cast adrift on the Mediterranean without a sail or rudder or oars, later making landfall in Alexandria, Egypt. There they managed to rig a sail and headed for what is today the southern coast of France, where the Rhone River Delta meets the sea, an area of marshland inhabited by fishermen and farmers, and a tiny port-turned-fortress as the centuries passed. An incredible story and legend, and one that is still celebrated today. Today, aside from being a working-class summer beach destination with a picturesque Romanesque fortress church, St. Marie de la Mer is known in France 
for the celebrations it holds for each Mary's Feast in May and October. The feast days in May draw large numbers of gypsy Catholics and others from France and beyond, typically 25 to 40,000 people altogether, to the town for a week. The high points at that feast include a ritual when a painted reliquary chest said to contain the bones of the Saints Mary's is ceremoniously lowered from its high perch to the altar for veneration, and the crypt is left open so that the statue of another figure, the gypsy's own Saint Sarah, can be honored as well. On successive days, gypsies and a large crowd process statues of Sarah and the Saints Mary's from the church to the beach, carrying them right into the sea, from whence they came. Today, in this two-episode series, we'll explore the legend of the Three Marys, and much more. It is an incredible story, and one I'm sure you'll enjoy. Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Part 1 of this two-episode story, titled The Legend of the Three Marys, is part legend, part history, and part mystery, and puts us on the trail of one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of the Bible. What happened to Jesus' closest followers after his crucifixion? How did they bring Christianity to Egypt and the far-flung reaches of South Africa and then on to Europe? as legend tells us, and who was it that brought it? What texts have been discovered that tell us of their works and their faith? What do we know about them as people? The death of Jesus Christ at the hands of the Romans and his resurrection is the greatest story ever told. Hundreds of historians have provided documentation to support the story of Jesus' crucifixion and that he was a very special man who ignited a faith that millions call Christianity today is not doubted. When I first started 1001 Heroes, four years ago now, I did a story on Joseph of Arimathea. His story and history is surrounded by legend. We will also take a look at what is known about Mary Magdalene, Mary Cleopas, and Mary Salome using every source available. And there are quite a few, beginning with the discovery of the Coptic Gospels of Thomas and Mary then the discovery of the Gnostic scriptures in Hambadi, Egypt, and then leading to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Then there's Roman Catholic tradition, ancient Greek and Hebrew writings, the Quran, oral legend, and the Gospels. It's not my intent to rewrite religion, challenge beliefs, or offer up fact. Everything brought forward here is meant to stir intellectual curiosity and hopefully send each of you on your own research missions. I happen to be a Christian, and I believe that Jesus was given an incredible mission on earth, which he accomplished through his sacrifice. I'm keeping an open mind as to some of the stories that say his mission didn't end on the cross, and we'll share some of those here as well in part two. Now take yourselves back to the hours and days following the death and resurrection of Jesus. When Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate to claim the body of the Messiah, He really sealed his fate as far as the Sanhedrin was concerned. 
Joseph of Arimathea was not one of the original twelve apostles, but he was a disciple of Jesus and was an important man in his own right. He's mentioned in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was a high counselor, a voting member of the Sanhedrin, which officially wanted Jesus condemned to death. He had likely not consented to or agreed with the decision to push Pontius Pilate to impose the death penalty upon Jesus. In spite of his relationship with Jesus, his loyalty to him was largely kept secret. Jesus was obviously unpopular with the elders of the church, and to outwardly support him did not bring favor in their eyes. Even though Joseph of Arimathea had attempted to keep his love for Jesus a secret, he boldly went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus to be placed in his trust. This is significant in and of itself. Joseph of Arimathea, not Mary Jesus' mother, not Mary Magdalene, or any of the apostles, were trusted with the act of taking Jesus down from the cross. All of the apostles were in hiding anyway. Joseph took the body and put it in his own tomb. According to various historical sources, Joseph's actions provoked both the Roman and Jewish elders, and in the coming weeks, he did spend time in prison for his support of Jesus, until, as the story goes, he managed to reach an agreement with his captors to be sent into exile with others whom he wanted to take with him. Following the death of what many were calling the Messiah, the Jews immediately began to purge Palestine of believers, fearing that the death of their spiritual leader would lead to martyrdom. So immediately everyone and everything that Jesus had been associated with became accursed and unholy. To keep the land from being polluted, Christ had to be destroyed before sundown, and the accursed tree or cross had to be burnt up so that no person could ever touch it again. What the Jewish authorities wanted to do was take the dead body of Christ and the accursed tree and burn them up together, just as the Israelites did with Achan in the Old Testament. This from the secrets of Golgotha. And this, according to legend, is why Joseph of Arimathea sought an urgent audience with Pilate. He had to claim the Messiah's body before the Jewish authorities could burn it to ashes. In doing so, however, he fueled the anger and hatred of the religious authorities. In secret conclave, they plotted and planned a campaign of unremitting persecution against the newly formed Church of Jehovah, God. They determined to exterminate or imprison all those who followed the way, and Joseph was at the top of the list. Soon a great persecution swept through the land. Saul, who was later to become Paul, raged through Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside, aiding the vengeful Sanhedrin in their pogrom against the followers of the Messiah. He struck quickly and viciously. Members of the Church of Jehovah God, whether they were Greek, Roman, or Jew, were openly, or in secret, struck down like vermin. No mercy was shown. The records of the time indicate that the prisons of Judea were filled to capacity with the unfortunate victims of the persecution. The first notable victim Saul seized upon was Stephen. Along with Peter, John, and others, Stephen had defied the Sadducees by vigorously preaching the kingdom of Jehovah God throughout the city of Jerusalem. Thousands were converted daily, a fact which further infuriated the corrupt Sadducean priesthood. Fate soon caught up with Stephen, and he was stoned to death by the minions of the Sanhedrin, as Paul looked on. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The time came when the Sanhedrin finally caught up with Joseph and his faithful companions. Frederick Mistral, the French provincial poet who lived in the 19th century, relates what happened in his work called Mireo, published in 1859. According to this, he writes, after Saul's persecution and imprisonment, Joseph and his companions were thrust into a boat without oars or sails by the Jews, who were glad to be finally rid of them. This occurred, according to Mistral, on the coast of Palestine, somewhere near to Mount Carmel. Thrust into the boat with Joseph were Lazarus, Trophimus, Maximin, Cleon, Eutropius, Sidonius, Restitutus, the man born blind, Martial, and Saturninus. Included in the boat were also Mary, wife of Cleopas, Salome, Mary Magdalene, Martha, and the maid of the two latter, Marcella. This may well have been one of Joseph's own boats, for with the tin mining business he had, he owned boats, large ones, and perhaps the deal he struck allowed he and his crew of apostles and believers to escape Saul's persecution, with one nasty drawback. The rudder, sails, and oars were removed at the last minute. The story relates that as the boat was drifting out to sea, Sarah, the handmaid of Salome and Mary Cleopas, cast herself into the sea to join her mistress, who, in despair of dying, had jumped overboard, and by the help of Salome, was brought into the boat. After beating about the Mediterranean for some time, the boat drifted into Alexandria, on the coast of Egypt, where they were able to effect repairs after a time. Eventually, and now under sail, the boat arrived on the coast of Province in Gaul, France, and following the River Rhone up the delta, arrived at Arles, which was eventually converted to Christianity by the preaching of Trophimus, one of the apostles on board. A lot of names here, so this is as good a time as any to highlight the three Marys, beginning with Mary Magdalene. It is widely accepted among secular historians that, like Jesus, Mary Magdalene was a real historical figure. Nonetheless, very little can be confirmed about her life, yet she left an enduring legend on the coast of France and elsewhere. The earliest and most reliable sources about her life are the three synoptic Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, which were all written during the first century AD. Mary Magdalene's epithet, Magdalene, literally the Magdalene, most likely means that she came from Magdala, a village on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee that was primarily known in antiquity as a fishing town. Mary was, by far, the most common Jewish given name for females during the first century. So it was necessary for the authors of the Gospels to call her Magdalene in order to distinguish her from the other women named Mary, who followed Jesus. Although the Gospel of Mark, the earliest surviving Gospel, does not mention Mary Magdalene until Jesus' crucifixion, the Gospel of Luke provides a brief summary of her role during his ministry. And the Gospel of Luke states, 
Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward Chusa, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their resources. The statement that Mary had been possessed by seven demons is repeated in Mark 16, part of the longer ending of that gospel. In the first century, demons were widely believed to be the cause of physical and psychological illness. Her devotion to Jesus on account of this healing must have been very strong. The gospel writers normally relish giving dramatic descriptions of Jesus' public exorcisms, with the possessed person wailing, thrashing, and tearing his or her clothes in front of a crowd. The fact that Mary's exorcism is given so little attention may indicate that it was either done in private or that it was not seen as particularly dramatic. And no, any other conjecture about what she was is purely conjecture, and tasteless at that. All four canonical Gospels agree that Mary Magdalene, along with several other women, watched Jesus' crucifixion from a distance. Mark 15, verse 40, lists the names of the women present as Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James and John, and Salome. We'll get to her in a few minutes. All four canonical Gospels, as well as the apocryphal Gospel of Peter, agree that Jesus' body was taken down from the cross and buried by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew 27 lists Mary Magdalene and the other Mary as witnesses. All four canonical Gospels, as well as the apocryphal Gospel of Peter, agree that Mary Magdalene, either alone or as a member of the group, was the first person to discover that Jesus' tomb was empty. Nonetheless, the details of the accounts differ drastically. According to Mark 16, the earliest account of the discovery of the empty tomb, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went to the tomb just after sunrise, a day and a half after Jesus' burial, and found that the stone had already been rolled away. They went inside and saw a young man dressed in white, who told them that Jesus had risen from the dead and instructed them to tell the male disciples that he would meet them in Galilee. Instead, the women ran away and told no one, because they were too afraid. According to John 20, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb alone when it was still dark and saw that the stone had already been rolled away. She did not see anyone, but immediately ran to tell Peter, the beloved disciple, who came with her to the tomb and confirmed that it was empty, but returned home without seeing the risen Jesus. According to John 20, Mary, now alone in the garden outside the tomb, saw two angels sitting where Jesus' body had been. Then the risen Jesus approached her. She at first mistook him for the gardener, but after she heard him say her name, she recognized him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Aramaic for teacher. She tried to touch him, but he told her, Don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Jesus then sent her to tell the other apostles the good news of his resurrection. The Gospel of John therefore portrays Mary Magdalene as the first apostle. The apostles sent to the apostles. In apocryphal texts, Mary Magdalene is portrayed as the visionary of the early movement, whom Jesus loved more than he loved the other disciples. Some researchers will tell you 
that all the information regarding Mary Magdalene, which has been discovered since in the Gnostic Gospels and other Coptic writings, all of which we'll discuss, should be looked at as unreliable. But there was a lot found, and it's worth discussing. The earliest dialogue between Jesus and Mary Magdalene is probably the Dialogue of the Savior, a badly damaged Gnostic text discovered in the Nag Hammadi Library in 1945. This was just two years before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in a series of caves located on the shore of the Dead Sea in Qumran. The dialogue consists of a conversation between Jesus and three disciples, Judas Thomas, Matthew, and Mary. The fact that the author chose Mary over all the other apostles, including Simon Peter, is highly indicative of her importance for early Gnostic Christians. The Pistis Sophia, probably dating as early as the 2nd century, is the best surviving of the Gnostic writings. It was discovered in the early 18th century in a large volume containing numerous early Gnostic treatises. The document takes the form of a long dialogue in which Jesus answers his followers' questions. Of the 64 questions, 39 are presented by a woman who is referred to as Mary, or Mary Magdalene. At one point, Jesus tells Mary, Mary, thou blessed one, whom I will perfect in all mysteries of those of the height, discourse in openness, thou whose heart is raised to the kingdom of heaven more than all thy brethren. Simon Peter, annoyed at Mary's dominance of the conversation, tells Jesus, My master, we cannot endure this woman who gets in our way and does not let any of us speak, though she talks all the time. And listeners don't think his speaking was out of line for the times, because all the men were probably thinking it. Women just didn't speak up in those times, because it had been drummed into them since birth that no good woman would do that. But Mary defends herself, saying, My master, I understand in my mind that I can come forward at any time to interpret what Pistis Sophia, the divine being who gives wisdom, has said. But I am afraid of Peter, because he threatens me and hates our gender. Jesus assures her, Any of those filled with the spirit of light will come forward to interpret what I say. No one will be able to oppose them. The Gospel of Thomas, usually dated to the late 1st or early 2nd century, was also among the ancient texts discovered in the Nakamadi Hammadi Library in 1945. Likewise, the Gospel of Philip, dating from the 2nd or 3rd century, survives in part among the texts found in Nag Hammadi. In a manner very similar to John 19, 25-26, the Gospel of Philip presents Mary Magdalene among Jesus' female entourage, adding that she was his koinonos, a Greek word variously translated in contemporary versions as partner, associate, comrade, companion. So the fact, and I know it took me a while to get here, that Mary Magdalene was a member of the castaway crew, was in fact placing a leader on board, a wise woman who wasn't afraid to speak up and would be a huge factor in delivering the word of Jesus to the people in Europe, beginning in the Rhone River Valley of France and spreading out along the trade routes that spread through Marseille and in all directions from there. And who was Salome? Not to be confused with the daughter of King Herod, who demanded she be handed the head of John the Baptist. Salome, or Mary Salome, was a follower of Jesus, who appears briefly in the canonical Gospels 
and in more detail in apocryphal writings. She is named by Mark as present at the crucifixion and as one of the women who found Jesus' tomb empty. Interpretation has further identified her with other women who are mentioned but not named in the canonical Gospels. In Roman Catholic tradition, Salome, as Mary Salome, is, or at least was in the Middle Ages, counted as one of the three Marys who were daughters of St. Anne, so making her the sister, or half-sister, of Mary, mother of Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, Salome is among the women who went to Jesus' tomb to anoint his body with spices. And that verse reads, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, and Salome, had brought sweet spices, that they might come and anoint him. They discovered that the stone had been rolled away, and a young man in white then told them that Jesus is risen, and told them to tell Jesus' disciples that he would meet them in Galilee. The third of the three Marys was Mary Cleopas, wife of Cleopas, and, like Salome, the sister of Jesus' mother Mary. Mary Cleopas, like Salome, was Jesus' aunt. A more loyal crew of faithfuls would not have been possible, for on the boat with no sails and no oars were Jesus' uncle, Mary Magdalene, the woman he loved as no other, his two aunts and mothers of his disciples, two men for whom he had performed incredible miracles, and the women servants. The Gospel of Mary, translated from Coptic into Greek, discovered in 1896, yet not printed until 1983, is the only surviving gospel named after a woman, and it provides important information about the role of women in the early church. The Gospel of Mary was probably written over a century after the historical Mary Magdalene's death. The Gospel, which as many of you know, is not included in the Bible, and does not claim to have been written by her, and its author is, in fact, anonymous. Instead, it received its title because it is about her. The main surviving text of the Gospel comes from a Coptic translation preserved in a 5th century manuscript, discovered in Cairo in 1896. As a result of numerous intervening conflicts, roughly half the text of the Gospel in this manuscript has been lost. The first six pages and four from the middle are missing. In addition to this Coptic translation, two brief 3rd century fragments of the Gospel in the original Greek have also been discovered which were published in 1938 and 1983, respectively. Try to imagine what it was like to discover ancient writings that concerned biblical stories and characters that surrounded Jesus. It would be Indiana Jones on steroids. Regarding the startling discovery of the Gnostic Gospels, Elaine Pagels, in her book The Gnostic Gospels, writes, In December 1945, an Arab peasant made an astonishing archaeological discovery in Upper Egypt. Rumors obscured the circumstances of this find, perhaps because the discovery was accidental, and its sale on the black market illegal. For years, even the identity of the discoverer remained unknown. One rumor held that he was a blood avenger. Another, that he had made the find near the town of Naj Hamadi at the Jabal al-Tarif, a mountain honeycombed with more than 150 caves. Originally natural, some of these caves were cut and painted and used as grave sites as early as the 6th dynasty, some 4,300 years ago. Thirty years later, the discoverer himself, Muhammad Ali al-Saman, 
told what happened. Shortly before he and his brothers avenged their father's murder in a blood feud, they had saddled their camels and gone out to the Jabal to dig for Sabak, a soft soil they used to fertilize their crops. Digging around a massive boulder, they hit a red earthenware jar, almost a meter high. Muhammad Ali hesitated to bring the jar, considering that a jinn or spirit might live inside. But realizing that it also might contain gold, he raised his mattock, smashed the jar, and discovered inside thirteen papyrus books bound in leather. Returning to his home in Alcazar, Muhammad Ali dumped the books and loose papyrus leaves on the straw piled on the ground next to the oven. Muhammad's mother, Umm Ahmad, admits that she burned much of the papyrus in the oven along with the straw she used to kindle the fire. A few weeks later, as Muhammad Ali tells it, he and his brothers avenged their father's death by murdering Ahmed Ismail. Their mother had warned her sons to keep their mattocks sharp. When they learned that their father's enemy was nearby, the brothers seized the opportunity, hacked off his limbs, ripped out his heart, and devoured it among them as the ultimate act of blood revenge. Fearing that the police investigating the murder would search his house and discover the books, Muhammad Ali asked the priest, Alkumas Basilius Ab el Masi, to keep one or more for him. During the time that Muhammad Ali and his brothers were being interrogated for murder, Rajib, a local history teacher, had seen one of the books and suspected that it had value. Having received one from Alkumas Basilius, Rajib sent it to a friend in Cairo to find out its worth. Sold on the black market through antiquities dealers in Cairo, the manuscript soon attracted the attention of officials in the Egyptian government. Through circumstances of high drama, as we shall see, they bought one and confiscated ten and a half of the thirteen leather-bound books called codices and deposited them in the Coptic Museum in Cairo. But a large part of the thirteenth codex containing five extraordinary texts was smuggled out of Egypt and offered for sale in America. Word of this codex soon reached Professor Gilles Kispel, distinguished historian of religion at Utrecht in the Netherlands. Excited by the discovery, Kispel urged the Jung Foundation in Zurich to buy the codex, but discovering when he succeeded that some pages were missing, he flew to Egypt in the spring of 1955 to try to find them in the Coptic Museum. And my note here. Egypt's and the Middle East's largest Christian sect is called the Copts, or Coptics, their faith goes back 2,000 years to Alexandria and the teachings of Mark there, teaching of Christianity that spread through the Middle East like wildfire. Mark preached the gospel less than a century after the tiny boat carrying our devout crew of believers was washed ashore with no sails or oars in Alexandria, then discovered by locals and later sent on its way in full sail toward the coast of France. Back to the discovery of the Gnostic Gospels. Arriving in Cairo, he went at once to the Coptic Museum, borrowed photographs of some of the texts, and hurried back to his hotel to decipher them. Tracing out the first line, Kispel was started, then incredulous to read. These are the secret words which the living Jesus spoke, and which the twin, Judas Thomas, wrote down. Kispel knew that his colleague, H.C. Puich, using notes from another French scholar, Jean Dorès, had identified the opening lines with fragments of a Greek Gospel of Thomas discovered in the 1890s. 
The Gospel of Mary was discovered about this time as well, originally written in Coptic Christian. We'll get to that in a minute or two. But the discovery of the whole text in the Gospel of Thomas raised new questions. Did Jesus have a twin brother, as this text implied? Could the text be an authentic record of Jesus' sayings? According to its title, it contained the Gospel according to Thomas. Yet, unlike the Gospels of the New Testament, this text identified itself as secret gospel. Kispel also discovered that it contained many sayings known from the New Testament, but these sayings, placed in unfamiliar contexts, suggested other dimensions of meaning. Other passages, Kispel found, differed entirely from any known Christian tradition. The living Jesus, for example, speaks in sayings as cryptic and compelling as Zen cones. Jesus said, If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. What Kispel held in his hand, the Gospel of Thomas, was only one of the 52 texts discovered at Nag Hammadi. Bound into the same volume with it is the Gospel of Philip, which attributes to Jesus acts and sayings quite different from those in the New Testament. Example. The companion of the Savior is Mary Magdalene. But Christ loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on her mouth. The rest of the disciples were offended. They said to him, Why do you love her more than all of us? The Savior answered and said to them, Why do I not love you as I love her? Researcher Karen King considers the work of the Gospel of Mary, and most serious researchers believe it was written about Mary Magdalene, to provide an intriguing glimpse into a kind of Christianity lost for almost 1,500 years. It presents a radical interpretation of Jesus' teachings as a path to inner spiritual knowledge. It rejects his suffering and death as the path to eternal life. It exposes the erroneous view that Mary of Magdala was a prostitute for what it is, a piece of theological fiction. It presents the most straightforward and convincing argument in any early Christian writing for the legitimacy of women's leadership. It offers a sharp critique of illegitimate power and a utopian vision of spiritual perfection. It challenges our rather romantic views about the harmony and unanimity of the first Christians, and it asks us to rethink the basis for church authority. King concludes that both the content and the text's structure lead the reader inward toward the identity, power, and freedom of the true self, the soul set free from the powers of matter and the fear of death. The Gospel of Mary is about inter-Christian controversies, the reliability of the disciples' witness, the validity of teachings given to the disciples through post-resurrection revelation and vision, and the leadership of women. In my opinion, It sounds like the Coptic Christians were trying to keep the faith alive and pure as they hid beneath the eye of the Romans and the Catholic Church and the changes and interpretations that Catholicism was bringing to Christianity. Why were these texts buried, and why had they remained virtually unknown for nearly 2,000 years? Their suppression as banned documents and their burial on the cliff at Nag Hammadi, it turns out, were both part of a struggle critical for the formation of early Christianity. The Nag Hammadi texts, and others like them, which circulated at the beginning of the Christian era, 
were denounced as heresy by Orthodox Christians in the middle of the second century. By the time of the Emperor Constantine's conversion, when Christianity became an officially approved religion in the fourth century, Christian bishops, previously victimized by the police, now commanded them. Possession of books denounced as heretical was made a criminal offense. Copies of such books were burned and destroyed. But in Upper Egypt, someone, possibly a monk from a nearby monastery of St. Pacomius, took the banned books and hid them from destruction in the jar where they remained buried for almost 1,600 years. But those who wrote and circulated these texts did not regard themselves as heretics. Most of the writings used Christian terminology, unmistakable related to a Jewish heritage. Many claim to offer traditions about Jesus that are secret, hidden from the many, who constitute what, in the second century, came to be called the Catholic Church. These Christians are now called Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. From the Greek word Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, usually translated as knowledge, Gnosis, knowledge. Gnostics, ones who have the knowledge. The Greek language distinguishes between scientific or reflective knowledge. He knows mathematics, and knowing through observation or experience, he knows me, which is gnosis. As the Gnostics used the term, we would translate it as insight. According to the Gnostic teacher Theodotus, writing in Asia Minor in the years 140 through 160, the Gnostic is one who has come to understand who we were and what we've become, where we were, whither we were hastening, from what we are being released, what birth is, and what is rebirth. Yet to know oneself at the deepest level is simultaneously to know God. This is the secret of Gnosis. Another Gnostic teacher, Monoimus, says, Look for him by taking yourself as the starting point. Learn who it is within you who makes everything his own and says, My God, my mind, my thought, my soul, my body. Learn the sources of sorrow, joy, love, hate. If you carefully investigate these matters, you will find him in yourself. What Muhammad Ali discovered at Nag Hammadi is, apparently, a library of writings, almost all of them Gnostic. Although they claim to offer secret teaching, many of these texts refer to the scriptures of the Old Testament and others to the letters of Paul and the New Testament Gospels. Many of them include the same dramatic personae as the New Testament, Jesus and his disciples. Yet the differences are striking. What became of the three Marys, and of Joseph of Arimathea, and the other apostles on the boat? How were they received in Europe, and what did they accomplish? In part two, we'll cover the story of Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus' uncle, and the time he very likely spent with his nephew Jesus during all those years when Jesus was missing from the Bible. We'll discuss what likely became of the three Marys, and how many of the occupants on the boat ended up spreading the gospel throughout Europe. We'll discuss the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and how they predicted Jesus' death and the plight of the Christians. And how much is truth and how much is legend? We'll leave that up to you. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We enjoy your reviews at Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. 
And we're encouraging your support at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Keep those reviews coming. We surely appreciate them. Thanks, everyone. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.